0: Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com We're going to read uh, from John 3 today, but just by way of introduction, I want to check you have hands. So, who... Uh, has hands, you put your arms up. Good. Who has used John 3.16 as a memory verse? Would anyone be brave enough to recite it for me from memory? Uh, Go then, yeah. (laughs) Excellent, very good, round of applause. Uh, Who can recite John 3.15? Okay, yeah, it's always the right answer. Why don't you? (laughs) Or 17 and 18, more importantly, maybe. I don't want to belittle memorizing John 3.16, because it's actually a really nice and succinct explanation of the gospel. I'm not going to say anything which is going to drastically contradict anything it says either. I just want to draw attention that when Jesus speaks, he speaks in context and to people. And he is very good at laying out Theological um, beliefs from the Old Testament and from the scriptures that he's grown up reading. And sometimes we cannot see the full beauty of what he's saying when we memorize it one sentence at a time. So we're going to read uh, John 3. We're going to read John 3 all the way through to 20, verse 21. It's going to be on the screen. And I'm actually not going to read it all right now. We'll, we'll just go, go through it bit by bit. Um, so in the first half of John's Gospel, what we see is we see Jesus, he's going through, and it's like he, John's making a point, and he's claiming ownership over four, four Jewish symbols and four Jewish feasts. So I think it's John two through to the end of John, end of John three, or halfway through John four. He's claiming ownership over these, these really important Jewish cultural things. So you have him at a wedding, uh, you see him at a well. Um, you see him at the temple, purging the temple. And in here, he's talking to a rabbi. And one of the things that is an undercurrent through here is just Jesus is a better rabbi than the best rabbis of his day. Um, and so we're going to see him talk to a guy who's right at the top of his game. And uh, we're gonna, we'll are see what he says. So we'll start in John 3, uh, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night. It's interesting, he came at night. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So who is Nicodemus? Well, he's a member of the Pharisees, which means they have particular beliefs about how God is gonna save his people. Um, And he's, he's 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 a teacher. He obviously thinks he can speak on behalf of a group of rabbis because he says we know. So when you think of Nicodemus, I want you to think about you know Archbishop of Canterbury, you know Archbishop Archbishop of York, maybe probably not the Pope, but you know someone right at the top, of, maybe NT Wright, you know top of their game theologically. They know that they know what know what they're about. They have a lot of influence. And then as a Pharisee, they had a picture of God's kingdom that they were working towards. And they were very up on purity, like their name comes from being separate. Their kind of belief was, if we separate ourselves from, from sin and from temptation, if we build a collection of people that are prepared to do that, once we're perfect, God will come, and he'll restore Israel. So they were very into kind of legal opinions about Torah, and, very into moral purity and Levitical purity. Um, and you know, they wanted to be separate because they thought, once we're holy, then God will save us. So Nicodemus and some Pharisees have heard about this preacher. And he's doing great signs. And he's upholding the holiness of God. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is close. He has a following along, among a lot of the normal people. Like For someone like Nicodemus, this is a dream. You know, if, you have a, if you're a political person, there's someone who's got the rabble. You're like, man, I need this person on my team, because then they'll vote for me. But then this speaker has literally walked into the temple. So the end of chapter 2, which we didn't go over. He's walked into the temple. He's kicked out all of the, um, all of the money changers. And he's just claimed that my father's house will be a house of prayer, and that if you knock it down, I'll rebuild it in three days. So this, is, um, this might have confused the Pharisees. Or it might be a, hmm, this guy's stepping over the line a bit. So when Nicodemus comes to him at night, I want you to imagine back, this is backroom politics. This is like, hey, Jesus, you're doing good things. We know you're from God. Maybe we can help each other out. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And, you know, from what we know about the Pharisees, when they say a teacher coming from God, we know he's thinking, hmm, this guy might be a new Moses. Now, Moses was the teacher come from God. Even now, a lot of Jews know Moses as, I'm going to mess this up, Mosh Rabinu, which just means our teacher. Moses, our teacher. He was seen as the top rabbi. The last or the greatest teacher that had actually come from God, because, you know, he went up the mountain, and he came back down with the Torah. Jesus does not accept the compliment. What's the next thing Jesus says? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So N.T. Wright or ABC, Archbishop of Canterbury, has come to you and says, ah, we know you're a teacher from God. And the first thing you say back is, you just start again, mate. You've got it all wrong. You're not going to get anywhere close unless you get born again. There is no time wasted at all in what Jesus is saying. And then what Jesus is going to do for the rest of this passage is he's going to use the scriptures and the Moses that Nicodemus holds so dear, and he's going to show him how he's got it completely the wrong way around. Um, I'm not going to have time to go over it, um, but I encourage you, if you want to do more reading, read Deuteronomy 29 and 30, and read Ezekiel 36, verse 20-ish, through to the end of Ezekiel 37. And if you read those, and then you read this chapter, and then you read those again, and then you read these chapters, what you'll see is that Jesus is making loads of references. And he's trying to say to Nicodemus, look, you have this, you're the teacher of Israel. This shouldn't be surprising you. So you'll read lots of times in the Gospels where Jesus talks about having these ears to hear or having eyes to see or hearts that understand. And a lot of the time he's lamenting that the Jews just aren't hearing what he's saying. They're not getting it. And he's actually quoting a lot of the time from Deuteronomy 29. In Deuteronomy 20, 29, this is like, Moses is about to die. He's about to send the people on into the promised land to make their nation. And he gives this kind of, he gives this kind of parting speech. And it lays out loads of stuff. It like predicts the, the future path of the nation of Israel. So when I read these, um, these three verses, I don't think they're on the projector. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen what the Lord did before you, before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and the great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So no matter what this great teacher Nicodemus is saying, no matter how much he thinks he understands God's scriptures. Jesus is pointing out to him no matter how biblically, how well versed you are biblically, sight, hearing, and understanding are always going to be the gift of God. Even Moses said that sight, hearing, understanding are the gift of God. Nicodemus seems to not get the point and instead he gets bogged down in the plumbing of rebirth. No. What he you say? He says, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like, this is doubly ridiculous when you realize that the word for again doesn't even necessarily mean again. It's like a double entendre. It means from above. Um, it means from above, and then it became from the beginning. And then from being from the beginning, it kind of became a, a word play to mean, to mean again. Um, we, we use things like this all the time. But I want you to remember what he says here. Nicodemus has asked a question, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus is gonna get around to answering this eventually. So keep it in your mind. But he doesn't answer it right away. With all the patience and clarity you'd expect from a good teacher, Jesus completely ignores Nicodemus' question. Nicodemus is playing games, and Jesus is having none of it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God, that which is born of spirit, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's verse five and six on that page, yeah. And then he continues. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Here Jesus is referencing Ezekiel, like I mentioned before. We sang a song this morning, and it was, uh, we proclaimed, you turn bones into armies. So we've referenced the same scripture that Jesus references in this passage. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet sees a valley of dry bones and is ordered to speak life to them. The wind blows, the prophet hears the rattle of the bones and the dry bones come alive. Not only that, but the prophet is told, these people that you see before you are the whole people of God. God will put his spirit in them. He will unify them and he'll call them back from all the nations of the world. They'll have David as their king. They'll have one shepherd. God himself will be with them. And everyone will know that it is Yahweh who sanctifies them and will live with them forever. So he's saying to Nicodemus, why are you surprised about this? What's with all your kind of faux outrage at what I've said? You know from the scriptures that to be God's renewed people, you must be born again by the Spirit. And Nicodemus still doesn't get it. This guy is the top of his game. This is the NT right of the, of the modern age. And he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. You know, like I said, quite aside from the actual argument, which is what I'm going to focus on today, one of the things is Jesus is just a better teacher. He has a better grasp of the scriptures. He's better at communicating them. He actually has understanding, an understanding heart, eyes to see and ears to hear. So Jesus says to him, are you really the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? This is the easy stuff. This is what you have written in your book. How can I tell you heavenly truth if you can't even grasp the earthly truth? No one else can tell you the heavenly stuff. Moses can't tell you the heavenly stuff. The prophet can't tell you the heavenly stuff. Because the only person who has been to heaven and has come down to tell you is me. Nicodemus still can't see. And Jesus keeps going, and he's still using Moses. He draws on a story from Numbers. This is verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So if you're wondering, those are the two verses right before the memory verse. And we're getting to the crux of Jesus' argument, But this is where he grounds John 3.16. John 3.16 is based on Numbers 21. This is Numbers 21. We're going to read from halfway through verse 4 to verse 9. The people are walking through the desert, and they became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. That worthless food, by the way, is the food that literally falls from the sky every morning. (laughs) Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. Um, For fiery serpent, think venomous snake. The fiery is the burning of the venom. Um, And that many people in Israel died. talking about in verse 13. He's saying it is modeled on this serpent that gets lifted up and brings protection from the fiery serpents and the the consequences of Israel's sin. Now that's the story about how God dealt with the wickedness of his people. They sinned in the wilderness. They lacked faith in his goodness. Even the good things he was doing for them, they scorned and said were worthless. You know, and whenever we read snakes in the Old Testament, we've got to remember that it was a snake in the garden that tempted Adam and Eve to leave God. It's a a snake that's crouching at the door when Cain kills Abel. You have um, Goliath is pictured in the language it's used as a snake. Like, this is the the snake is the opposition. The serpent is in in opposition to God, and is trying to undermine humanity's position with him. So snakes are both a picture of wicked, the, the actual wickedness itself, but also the temptation towards wickedness, and also that like we can become snakes to each other if we lead each other astray. All of that stuff is mixed up in what, what is being talked about here. And so what Moses does is he makes an embodiment of the curse. He makes a bronze snake. You know, he could have made it, it could, God could have told him to put an angel on a, on a stick, Or, you know, put a vial of vaccine on a stick or something. (laughs) But Moses Moses is told to make a snake. How does Nicodemus expect that God's kingdom is coming about? What Nicodemus is expecting is for a group of people to separate themselves from sin and its effects. And in being separate from sin and its effects, God will save the nation and build it anew. He's thinking that if we do something, if we make ourselves pure, God will save us. But in Numbers 21, God doesn't save Israel by taking away the snakes. The snakes are still there. The pole's still there. All the way later when you have King Hezekiah, the pole is still there. So for whatever reason, they kept carrying this pole with them. So I would suggest that the snakes stayed there maybe not into the promised land, maybe they couldn't cover the Jordan. I think the story is that the snakes followed them through the wilderness. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, this is not going to go the way you think. God's salvation is not coming by taking the snakes away, or you kicking the snakes out of your city, or you impaling the snakes, or stoning the snakes, or whatever it is. The salvation that you're waiting for isn't coming the way you're trying to get there. And so finally, we land on Jesus' great um, expounding of the gospel, 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You know, just as those Israelites, didn't matter whether they were the ones that were groaning, didn't matter how many times they'd been bitten, didn't matter if they ran away from the snakes. The only thing that mattered is, will you look to the snake on the pole? When you're bitten. And so that is how Jesus has got to where he's got to. And so I want to go through that's kind of the passage. I might do a bit more of the passage later. We'll find out. But I want to go through four I want to go through four observations um, or four reflections on this. The first one is whatever God's salvation is for you. He might not take away your snakes. You know, we all have trials and temptations. We all suffer. Sometimes it's a consequence of our sin. Sometimes it's a consequence of someone else's sin. Sometimes it's just because. But the salvation that Jesus offers does not come through separating you from your trials and temptations. It comes from beholding him and looking to him in the midst of your trials and temptations. You know, Andrew preached two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whenever it was. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or as Paul found when he prayed for God to remove his trial. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, even calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So that's my first reflection. God might not separate you from your snakes. He's given you someone to look at in the midst of your trials. My second reflection is that what Jesus offers is more than just surviving. The Israelites in Numbers were told, if you look at the snake, you won't die. But what Jesus says is, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. When the Son of Man is lifted up, it isn't just survival that's offered, but new life completely. You know, this is how Jesus started right at the beginning. You must be born again when he said to Nicodemus, you need to start over, you need a do-over, and not just a do-over, not just starting again, but starting from above. You need this new source to draw your life from. This is what Jesus was getting at when he said to Ezekiel 36, when he's was reading from Ezekiel 36 and 37. This is, um, this is 37 verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will, I will put within you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and for your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. When I raise you from your graves, O my people, I will put your spirit within you and I will live. If you believe in Jesus, if you look to him, he gives you new life. This is the promise. This is what has changed from the time of Deuteronomy. God will give you an understanding heart, seeing eyes, and hearing ears. Because in looking to Jesus, he has fulfilled the eternal life that we require. You know, Nicodemus was working really hard to be pure, so that God would give him new life. You know, and his question, how do I get born again? Like, what a stupid question. How did you you get born? What did you do to get born? Mm -hmm. You did nothing. You know, I'm going to talk about something I'm completely ignorant of childbirth <laughs> I was utterly ignorant and you know, since we've had Eden I'm now only completely ignorant but you know seeing Amy go through that you know, it's, it's risky it's painful you know, I mean it's less risky now but it's properly risky it's hard how did Eden get born she didn't do anything You know, Eden got her life because Amy loved her first. You know, Amy went through that because she loved her first. And when we look at Jesus, we get our new life because he loved us first. That's it. My third reflection there is only one test that matters. You know, like I said before, those Israelites in the wilderness. It didn't matter how much they personally had moaned. They might have thought the quail from the sky was actually really tasty and not called it worthless. All that mattered was whether they would look to the bronze serpent. You know, In Moses' closing speech that we read from in Deuteronomy, he goes on to say, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life. That you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and he is your length of days. That's Deuteronomy 13, 19, and 20. You know, all through Scripture, there has only ever been one test that mattered. Will you have faith in the God that loved you first? You know, Adam and Eve, they were put in a garden, surrounded by blessing, they had one choice, and they got it wrong. You know, Cain had one choice, and he got it wrong. Abraham had one choice, and he got it right. And it completely erased all of his other choices. Abraham was terrible. And yet he had faith in the God who loved him first. So will you put your faith... In the God who gives life, and loved you first. And my final observation—I don't really know what to do with this one, but I've been chewing it over. So I'll give it to you, and you can chew it over. Is to behold unflinchingly. You know, God could have put something nice on the pole, something pretty to look at. And instead what he put on the pole was a reminder of the people's sin. A reminder of the curse they were under. To properly look at Jesus on the cross to see his suffering is to be reminded of why he suffered and what you did to make that necessary. You know, We noted earlier that Jesus that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And in the very end of this passage, um, Jesus goes on to do a little bit of talking about light and dark. And he says So this is verse nineteen. So this is immediately after Jesus has said, Whoever does not believe in the Son of God is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is that judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." So much of this is about looking and seeing. If you're hiding in the dark, you can't see anything. But to see something, you have to switch the light on. And that means you will be seen. So the question I would ask you is, are you hiding? Are you prepared to come to the light? David prays in the Psalms, search me, O God, and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there is in me the worship of false gods, lead me in the way everlasting. The wicked love darkness, because in the darkness they can pretend they're not wicked, because they can't see it. God's promise is to save those who step into the light. And the really interesting thing is whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus seems to be saying that if you come to the light and expose yourself before me what you will find is not your wickedness but you will find that works have been done in God. It's almost like he's saying, as you behold me and see in yourself, and and see in me the sin, I will look at you and see in you works of righteousness. You know, so Andrew preached two weeks ago to behold. Julia preached last week to, to comprehend, to chew over, to think. I would encourage you to look at Jesus. You know, he is a delight and a joy and a marvel. Consider his love with which he loves you. You know, I consider Amy's love for Eden. Going through all that stuff, who knew what Eden was going to be like? (laughs) Like, she could have been a terror. She isn't. She could have been a terror. And yet, Amy, Amy loved her first. Consider his love for you. Consider his love for your worst enemy. You know, consider that he overcame injustice by submitting to it. See the kindness with which he restores Peter. Just think about it. He's so wonderful. And as you look at him, you become like him. And so I'm going to finish. Oh, I'm under time. First time ever. I'm going to finish uh, with a reading from Corinthians. This is 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18. Yes. To this day, Nicodemus doesn't say Nicodemus, my edition. To this day, Nicodemus, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To explore this sermon, or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media, and you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode. From our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting you.